0: And we're going to be uh, in John chapter 12, a very familiar passage if you want to uh, turn on your devices, your Bibles. I don't know really what it was like, because it would have gotten uh, too out of hand, and the Roman soldiers scattered around Jerusalem would have really clamped down on it, because it was kind of a tense time. So I don't know really what it was like, but in my imagination... I think it's gotta be something like the scenes we see when champion sports teams uh, come back into the city. You know, you've all seen it on TV and and, you know, the hordes of them come in and they're cheering and they're waving banners and the team goes through in an open uh, bus or trailers or pickups or, or something. And everyone's there's this massive celebration as all are thankful and celebrating the great pageantry of a win and the longer that they've waited for a win, It seems like the more tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of people come out into the streets and celebrate and sing their songs and all of these things and maybe down in their hearts think and hope that maybe, maybe this is the beginning of a dynasty. Maybe we'll win the championship next year and the next year and the next year. Maybe we'll have a whole bunch of years falling and so they all get swept up into this great celebration. These victory parades, these triumphs that we see when sports teams win. That's got a long tradition. And we back in the ancient days, before the times of Christ, and including the times of Christ, they would have these victory celebrations. And what would happen when a a king who was victorious or a general who was victorious, they'd enter into the town. As they were approaching, then the people of the city or the town, they would rush out uh, to greet them. They'd wave banners. They'd sing their praises. There'd be all these uh, marvelous uh, feasts and celebrations. And then as the general or as the king came in and entered into their triumph, then they'd head to the temple. And when they got to the temple of the city, whether it was Jerusalem Muslim, or some pagan city, then the leader would go up to the temple and they would offer up uh, some kind of a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was sort of a dual purpose. It was both a, a, a thanksgiving for the victory, but also it was also a bit of a claim that they now owned that city and when the people would go out and when the religious rulers would go out and open up the gates of the city open up the gates of the temple what they were saying is that this is a statement of loyalty we recognize you as the king we recognize you as the conquering general we recognize you as the one who is now lord over this area and if they didn't come out and if the religious leaders and the city leaders of the city didn't come out then the king that was entering would come back a second time there'd be a second coming of this king, of this triumphal general, but it wouldn't be quite so pleasant. They would often come out and decimate uh, the cities. So this is kind of the history of these triumphal entries. That's what's going on in the background culturally when we come to the event that we're looking at today. And so we need to keep that in our mind as as we look at this event in Jesus' life and also the implications for our life, which to me, As I just sort of tried to boil these verses, we're going to look down to it. It seems to me that it's basically this invitation to us to sing Hosanna to the humble King of all. He comes in in a triumph, but he comes in in a different way than what the people were used to. So let's take a look at it. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So here he comes. They hear it's happening. The the, the triumphal king is going to enter into. And so they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it's written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples didn't understand all of this. It was only after Jesus had been glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word, and many people. Because they'd heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees and the leaders, who should have been out to see him, said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. All right. A couple of messages for us in our life as we, as we analyze and think through and pray through and meditate upon this great event in the life of Christ. And the first message is simply this. To cry out to God to save us. The cry out to God to save us. You see, the, the crowd had come. It said they'd come for the festival, and the festival that they came out to was Passover. You remember Passover. It's a celebration uh, of Israel that God had taken his people out of slavery from Egypt into the Promised Land. And that whole deal, you know, where they killed the, the, uh, the Passover lamb, and they spread the blood over the doorpost, and wherever there was the blood of the lamb on the household, the angel of death passed over or skipped over that household, and they weren't killed. So this Is this celebration that God is one who delivers us from slavery. God is one who delivers us from our enemies. But here's what you might have missed. What the crowd is doing is they're actually combining two feasts here and the meaning of two feasts. Because what they're also doing here is remembering Hanukkah. Now we looked at Hanukkah about a month ago or so, six weeks, something like that and the meaning of it, you remember that that was that, that great feast that they had where they celebrated the Maccabean rebellion. Remember the story? Uh, how the Maccabees rose up and Syria was oppressing Israel and they had this massive army and Jacob Maccabees rose up and just a few people, just a small army overthrew the Syrian rulers and, and this was Hanukkah which they celebrate still today, you know, put on your yom- all that kind of stuff we looked at. And so and what, what became associated with Hanukkah was palm branches. They'd wave them around, kind of like a banner, kind of like a flag. As a matter of fact, palm branches, uh, because of the Maccabean rebellion, because of the great victory that God gave them over these uh, Syrian oppressors, uh, the palm branch became a symbol of Israel, kind of like their flag, kind of like the victory banners when the winning team actually comes into town. So what's going on is that this is Passover, but they're also remembering Hanukkah, which had happened a few months before, and they're actually celebrating two festivals all at once they're celebrating the passover when god delivered them from egypt and they're celebrating hanukkah when god had delivered them under the maccabees from oppression of syria so you see what's going on in the crowd's fire here they think this is the time they think this is it they think that this is maybe God coming to deliver them from the oppression of Rome once again. It was Passover, freedom from slavery, and it was Hanukkah because God had sent them a new ruler, kind of like the Maccabees, who's going to lay, lead them in opposition to Rome, and in spite of their small size, and in spite of Rome's gigantic power, they would win. And so they sing a portion of the Psalms. Psalm 118. That is a messianic psalm. That was one of the psalms that the Jewish people sang to remind themselves and to proclaim that God would send them a savior, that God would send them a deliverer and if you read that psalm you'll see it's a psalm about how Israel was surrounded by their enemies how they were overpowered how they didn't stand a chance how the the odds against them were massive but yet somehow God was going to save them God was going to deliver them God was going to rescue them in spite of being surrounded by enemies and it's a psalm celebrating that he did that and buried in that psalm is this phrase Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for the Jewish people, that was a code word. When they sang that song, when they heard those words, when they spoke those words, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were saying, here comes the Messiah. Or at the very least, here comes the prophet of the end times. And so what they're doing is they're rushing out to Jesus and they've got Passover in mind and they've got Hanukkah in mind and they've got Psalm 118 in mind and they're saying, Jesus, you are this Messiah. You are this one who's going to come and deliver us. You at the very least are the end time prophets about to make all things right. And then just in case we miss what they mean, they add to the Psalm this whole thing of blessed is the king of Israel. So they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now back in the olden days, we used to sing songs with Hosanna in there. It's been a long time, but sometimes we'd sing them and we'd those words and we wouldn't really really know what it means. But what Hosanna means, it literally means, save us. That's what they're doing. That's what this this Hosanna, Hosanna. It's save us, save us, save us, save us. We recognize you're the Messiah. We recognize you're the one who is the king. We recognize you're our hope. Come now and save us. But there's kind of a second meaning. Because you see, they sang that song. They uttered those words to God. And because it's God, they were quite sure that God actually could and that God actually would save them. And so it translated not just into this appeal to God, God save us, but it also became a praise. It also became a statement that God is the saviour. God will save you. God will save you. God will save me. And so on the one hand, it was this appeal to God. God save us, deliver us, rescue us. And on the other hand, it was this great proclamation of praise. You are the one who saves. You are the one who delivers. You are the one who will fulfill our needs. And we need both meanings, don't we? We need rescue. We need deliverance. Truth be told... Most of us don't like to think about that very much, do we? I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you kind of like to solve your own problems. Trying to like to think that our own smarts or our own resources or our own wisdom or our own finances, our own schemes and plans, that somehow uh, that is what's going to deliver us. We don't like to think that we need rescue, that we need deliverance, that things are beyond our control and beyond our abilities and beyond our understanding. And we don't like to think that, man, this is just too big for me. We live in comfortable, rich, peaceful Canada. And we can fool ourselves for a long time that we don't need rescuing, that we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. Often we'll uh, joke around the, with the staff and the prayer times, or you know any prayer requests, and if the sound's on the table, I say no, uh, because everything is just fine, and I did it all by myself. Don't need to ask, don't need to thank. But somehow we, we live in this bubble where we can begin to convince ourselves that we don't need saving. But sooner or later, Sooner or later we come upon circumstances when we realize this is beyond us. Maybe it's a breakdown of a friendship. Or maybe something has gotten into your your marriage that it's just kind of blown apart. And no matter how often you have a conversation, no matter how much counseling you get, it just just isn't working out and you just can't seem to get past this problem. Maybe it's some tension between children and parents. Maybe it is our finances. But perhaps more often than not, it's stuff that goes on within ourselves. We find ourselves sinking into depression as the days get shorter. And we know it's crazy and we desperately don't want to go there because we've been through there before. But somehow we just can't stop the slide. Maybe it's anxiety. Where you just realize that this is beyond me. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say and our body, we feel it seizing up and it gets hard to breathe. The breath gets shallow, it starts to sweat, and we think, this is nuts, this is crazy, but somehow it grips us and we can't get past it. Maybe it's shame. Shame which drives so many people into addictions of various kinds and in some way to escape what's going on in their life. Maybe it's guilt, because we actually did do something for which we are guilty. And maybe it's like me. Me, it's anger. You know, I've told you guys a hundred times, you're sick of hearing, it, I know, but you know, like, like I had real issues with anger for a long time. I don't know whether it was a, like, it, if it was genetic or passing from my parents because it goes back a few generations or just circumstances or what. And, but, you know, I, I went to psychologists, you know, got counselling and, and they'd helped, you know, they kind of taught me some techniques as to how not to do too much damage when I got mad. And, you know, Bruce Ritty helped me, you know, trace it all back. And, and those techniques help quite a bit and stuff, but it's still, inside, I'd be like. Until one day, you know, I was praying, I was like, God, you know, just can you take away this anger? Can you just take it away? I don't want to be an angry person. This is, this is not the way of Jesus. That's said the Holy Spirit said to me. Well, why do you want to be angry? I, God, maybe you haven't heard me for the last bunch of years, but this is why I'm praying. I don't want to be angry. Just can you heal me of this anger? Well, why do you want to be, I don't want to be angry. Oh. <laughs> And then I realized that, man, you know why I wanted to be angry? Because when I got angry, stuff happened. It worked. It worked. And until I confessed to God, oh, you know what? I want to have that as a tool in my back pocket. When all else fails, I can drag out anger and stuff's going to change. And until I confessed that and then said, God, I need salvation from this. And then God began to, to do a work and... And uh, praise God! You know, I think it no longer would be, I be—I hope—described as a man of anger who talked for joy. But we we come to this place sooner or later, when we're honest with ourselves, that we think, you know what? I've I've applied all my will, I've applied all my efforts, I've gone for counselling, I've done this, I've done that, and this is just bigger than me. I just can't do it. Holy Spirit, I need you to heal me. I need you to save me. Hosanna, Hosanna, save me. Change this. Deliver me, heal me, fix the problem, fix the friendship, fix my relationships, fix my heart. Hosanna, heal me. And of course, there's the big one. We all need saving from our sin. Because to be in the fellowship of God forever means that perfection is required to dwell in the house of the Almighty. Who can ascend the hill of the Almighty? Those who've never said a bad word. Those who have always kept their word. And so we need the blood of Jesus to wash away our sin. And we need the spirit of Jesus to come and to transform us bit by bit. We need the sacrifice of a perfect King Jesus and so we cry out, Jesus, Hosanna, save us and thank you for saving us. And when we come to it and when we admit it and when we've experienced this kind of deliverance or this salvation from whatever it is that wrecks our hearts and wrecks our relationships and all of these things or even salvation then we're very thankful for that but there's another part of jesus being the king which is maybe even a little bit tougher for us and that is that king's rule and so to sing out hosanna Blesses the name of come to the lord Blesses the king of israel It is to say that, Jesus, you will rule over us. That I am going to be in the business of living and growing as a subject of the king. A subject and citizen of the king. The king is our savior and ruler come together. It's two sides of the the same coin. You know, on on Friday morning, I woke up with a start early. What woke me up? I'll tell you what woke me up. I was dreaming I was preaching. And I was preaching on this point. I was getting too worked up. And so... (laughs) Because it's so easy for us to forget that this whole thing of salvation, when we come to salvation, we come to Jesus, and we say, yes, thank you, God, for saving us. But we forget that that's just step one, that that's the beginning of the journey, that the rest of my life and for all of eternity, it's me learning how to be a subject, a disciple, a follower of the king. And what it is to have Jesus rule my heart and rule my life, my every thought, my every word, my every action, my every reaction. Because that's what it is to live as a king. And we don't necessarily like that. We love the salvation, but the kingship stuff, ah, a little tough. But really, it's a bit of a problem for us because we don't understand the symbol of a king. I mean, now we don't have too many kings around, and the ones that we do have, we don't pay any attention to. It's more of a symbol than a reality. But when we talk about Jesus being the king, he is not just a symbol. He is the absolute ruler. And we say, Hosanna, blessed be the king of all. Blessed be my ruler, my boss, my governor, the one whom I serve and love and lay my life down for. And this is what these people are saying, but they didn't really understand what they were saying. And so Jesus says, all right, you're right. I'm the king. I'm the Savior. But let me explain to you what kind of a king I really am. I'm a king on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. You know, it's kind of interesting in the Gospel of John. If you, if you take all the Gospels of Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about this triumphal entry, you might remember that in those other Gospels, do you remember this? Jesus sends some disciples out. You know, he says, hey, you know, go, and they're going to find a guy, follow this guy, you know. There's going to be this donkey, telling the master needs it, and, you know, one guy has two donkeys, one guy has one, and everyone freaks out. but it, it, John didn't have any of that messing around. The way that John writes it, it's like Jesus is responding to this cry of the crowd. The cry of the crowd is, hey, you're the king, you're the savior, you're the ruler. You come in now and we're going to beat the tar out of these Romans. We're going to be just like the Maccabees. It's going to be just like Exodus. It's going to be a marvelous thing. The firstborn are going to die. The army's going to die. And we are going to be victorious because you, Jesus, are the king. And you're going to slaughter anyone that comes against us. And Jesus says, uh... Let me show you the kind of king I am. Let me show you how I fight my battle. Let me show you how, in me, you'll become an overcomer. The first thing you need to realize is that I am not a ruler like Alexander the Great or Caesar coming into the cities in a great triumph on a mighty war horse. I'm coming on a baby donkey. And you look, you see there in verse 16, it says, when this stuff was going on, when Jesus did this stuff, we didn't have a clue what he was doing. We didn't understand what was going on. It wasn't until after Jesus was glorified, which is John's code for crucifixion and resurrection. It wasn't until we saw that, that we really understood what Jesus was doing sitting on this donkey coming in. So I think there's four or five things that, that, that we need to get out of this, this whole thing about what Jesus is saying is this is the kind of king I am. First thing is that Jesus was coming in victory. He was coming as the great conqueror. Because if you notice, uh, right before this, portion of scripture and right, and how this portion of scripture ends is the story of lazarus the story of jesus raising a man from the dead and so when jesus comes in what john's done by sandwiching his story between these two statements he's saying yeah jesus came in all right he came in as the conquering king and he came in as the one who conquers death itself That's the triumph that I have. So you're right. I'm coming in as the Lord. I'm coming in as the victor. I am one who has victory in your life over death. The second thing is we it's kind of obvious. You compare a little donkey to a war horse. It's a sense of humility. That I come as the humble king. The humble king. The day will come when I will come in all of my glory and those who are not going to come out to the city to greet me who fall to their knees because they have to. But right now, I, I want you to know who I am in my heart. I'm a humble king. And then it gets a little technical. All right, now we have to think. We have to think. Because there's a lot packed in. To verse 15. So you've got verse 15 there, that's this, this, this little quotation here. There's so much packed in here that we're going to unpack it a little bit. Uh, what, what he does, what John does here in, in, verse, uh, in verse 15 is he combines two Old Testament prophecies, okay? There's two things, two passages combined. Uh, the big one is from Zechariah, who lived about 500 years before Jesus, just after the Babylonian captivity. You know, they came out of Babylon, were coming back to the land, all this stuff, people that walls, all that kind of stuff. So that was then. And, and the other one is Zephaniah. You would have thought he'd have made it handy by taking some prophets that didn't sound the same. But he didn't. So first one, the big one, Zechariah. Second one is Zephaniah, who lived 600 years. So 100 years before that. Okay, now, mostly, it's Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. So let's read it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The enemies that were surrounded them, Right? And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 16 through 17. That's, that's the first one. But did you notice the difference between that passage in Zephaniah and what we read in John? John changes the first line. And Instead of where this guy says, rejoice, Jerusalem, rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. Instead, he puts in, fear not. Well, what's he doing there? He wants them to realize that, hey, you know what? This is Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, needs to be added in here as well. So let's see what that says. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem... Do not fear Zion. Okay, that's, that's the quote. Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take a great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Man, I love that verse. I've prayed that verse to so many people. This incredible. I remember (laughs) saying to a guy about this one, this great song, he said, oh, yeah, but you know, he didn't sing a song of joy over me because I'm kind of rebellious and I'm kind of... I said, no, you don't understand. If you look at that passage and you look at the context, this is God. He's speaking to a rebellious people. He's speaking to a people who have wandered away from him. And he's saying that, you know what, the day is, you know, you're going to have to go through some tough times as a result of your disobedience. But understand this, I sing a song of delight over you. The living God, the living God, the Lord of the nations, sings a song of delight over you. Man, I wish that we could all hear that song all of the time. All right, so what does this mean? How do we unpack it? Okay, remember the first two things. First thing is that, yeah, Jesus comes as the victor. He's the victor over death. Second thing is he comes in as the humble king. Number three. He saying, yes, I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. That which you've been waiting for, the person that you've been looking for, I am that person. I am the one who comes to deliver and to save and to bring victory. But what about this do not be afraid? What about this, this, this change which, which John wants us to oh, hang on a minute. That's not how it fits. We don't know the Old Testament like we're supposed to do like the Jews did, so we kind of miss it. But they'd be like, that's not what it says. What do you mean? Do not be afraid. Oh, that's Zephaniah. Well, here's the trick. Zechariah talks about a savior, talks about a, a Messiah. But Zephaniah, It's God himself who comes to deliver. God himself who comes to dwell with his people. And what Jesus is saying and what John is telling us that they didn't understand when this was all first happening is that Jesus says, yeah, I'm coming, and I'm coming as the king, but you need to understand I'm not coming as just the Messiah king, as just some warrior king, you know, some guy that's like the Maccabees. No, 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 you need to understand that I am God himself coming to live with you. I am God. I am the king of all the nations, not just Jerusalem, not just you people, but of all of the universe. I am the Lord God Almighty come to dwell among you. And so you need not fear because God is with you. Not just some general who's going to win a couple of battles, but God Himself who rules over all. And I, God, myself, I want to gather to myself the lame and the hurting and the broken and the cast off and the scattered. And I want to call back all those who've wandered off because that's the kind of king I am. That's the kind of king I am. I am Jesus, the Messiah, the humble king who is Lord of all and calls all people no matter thy circumstance, maybe even especially those who are scattered and lame and broken and blind and hurting and rebellious. I'm going to call you to myself. Because you see, number five, I'm the universal king of peace. The universal king of everybody who wants to bring shalom, who wants to bring wholeness, who wants to bring health, who wants to bring reconciliation to all people. Both of these passages in Zephaniah and Zechariah, they speak of war and of conflict ending. And all of the nations, Jew and Gentile, coming under the peaceful rule of God. Because that is the heart of God. And as the people rushed out of Jerusalem to greet Jesus and proclaim him as Messiah, as the deliverer, as the king who would lead them out of oppression of Rome and defeat their enemies, Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah and I am your king and I will defeat those who make you their enemies says, I am the Lord God Almighty and here's how I'm going to defeat your enemy. I'm going to make them your brother and your sister. And as those who have rejected you and as those who have oppressed you and as those who have made war against you, as they come to know me, I'm not going to slaughter them. I'm going to make them family. I'm going to make you one in the kingdom of God. Blood brothers and blood sisters because I am this conquering king who is entering the city. And when the conquering king and general entered the city, they went to the temple and they made a blood sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the kind of king I am. I'll tell you how I'm gonna conquer your enemies by making you brother and sister. I'm gonna be the sacrifice. I'm gonna sacrifice myself that's the kind of king that's the kind of universal king that I am and all people who will just recognize this will hear my song of delight over them as I draw them back in and that is why We sing, Hosanna, save us. Thank you for saving us. To the humble, self-sacrificing King of all. Jesus, there's so much of you that I forget. There's so much of you that I don't yet know. And we're so thankful that you came to reveal your heart, to reveal the very heart of God. In this grand event, this historical triumph, which actually is kind of like what one guy says, the anti-triumph, who turned it all around, who came to give us victory. Victory over our ailments and over our enemies by sacrificing yourself. Lord, I pray. I pray for those of us who are hurting as David's has done. I just, I just want to ask that each person could hear your song of delight over them. In spite of stumbling, in spite of rebellion, in spite of doubts, in spite of hurts, in spite of sin, in spite of wandering, questioning, frustrations, rebellion, anger, that they could hear you as a universal king who comes to save us and says, oh, you're lame, you're blind, you're stubborn, you're rebellious, you're proud, you're full of anxiety, depression. I, God Almighty, am with you. I have come among you. Quiet our hearts. help us help us to hear this song of delight open our ears grant us hope grant us healing grant us your lordship